When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. There was a time when a sports writer became synonymous with a market. A writer built up trust with local readers over years. A relationship formed. Bernie Miklas was that guy in St. Louis. And he's still that guy. Bernie is the writer and radio broadcaster fans in St. Louis count on for sports news and analysis, especially about their beloved Cardinals. And it's been that way since the 1980s. Multiple generations have been on the same ride with him. Now, so are we. We're lucky to have Bernie take time from his busy schedule to share some stories from his award-winning career. Hello, Bernie. Thanks for joining us on Press Box Access. Welcome. Really glad to do this. Thanks for inviting me. I, man, you've been talking to all my friends, and I'm no longer uh, you know, on the sidelines. Thanks for well, inviting me It's in. great. It's You're great. always welcome. The doors are always open. We might have to kick everybody out at 2 a.m. When they, when they call up the house lights and say no more <laughs> beer, but... We'll we'll try to get this in before then. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it. We'll get, we both like yeah. to get time. We'll get Bernie, it done. I hear your name and immediately think of St. Louis, obviously. Uh, you've been there since the 80s. Uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist from 89 to 2015. You're still writing and broadcasting afternoon talk show at 590 to Fan. You write for scoops with DannyMac.com and... Uh, you know, you've been there so long, you're like the voice, uh, the written voice and the spoken voice of uh, St. Louis sports. Um, you know, what's it been like to have a relationship with one city all these years? Uh, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I grew up in Baltimore, and uh, that's where I started my career. And it was my home, and I loved it dearly, but I realized I had to kind of, um, you know, make a move career-wise because the paper I was working for was on a death spiral uh, afternoon paper, the old Baltimore News American. But anyway, when I got to St. Louis, man, it, it you know, clearly uh, I, it adopted me and, and took me in and, and I, you know, was fortunate to sort of win people over and earn their trust. I, now, I did leave for a little while. I went to the Dallas Morning News to cover the Cowboys, Tom Landry's final year, but... Then I returned as a columnist. So I've been, you know, continuously in St. Louis since 1989, but I put in three years before that. There's about a 15-month gap. But, but St. Louis has been great to me. I mean, I'm blessed. Um, even through the trials and the tribulations and job changes and this and that, you know, people have um, been really loyal. And, you know, you really find out. Um, it's hard to explain. It's really, really meaningful. It's great. Well, like I said, I think of you in St. Louis, but when I hear your name, Bernie, I also think of Chris Weber, of all things. That's an odd connection, and I'm sure you don't, <laughs> I by your reaction, gonna... I'm sure you don't remember, but I have this distinct memory that you and I were sitting right we're next sitting... to each other on Press Row, courtside, right. at the 1993 Final Four, 
North Carolina versus Michigan in the championship game. Chris Webber gets a rebound. He walks. They don't call it. He brings it up court. He gets trapped. He signals for timeout. And I turned to you, Bernie. I said, they don't have any more timeouts. You did. I do remember this now, and I apologize. <laughs> I'm getting old. Uh, no, I, and you know, you and I and the people near us, we had like the perfect oh, yeah. seat for that as far right. as the view. I mean, I'll never forget. I mean, you and I are like directly looking right across, right across the court. I mean, it's we're not looking down the court or, the, you know, it's like right in front of us, basically. And I, yeah, I remember that. It was just like, what just happened? You know, just like it was incredible. That was one of the that was an amazing night, you know. And, uh, you know, I had to I had to crank out a column and it seemed like five oh, yeah. minutes, maybe a little maybe more than that, but it wasn't much time. <laughs> Todd, you bring you bring up a story and you, right away I'm happy because. Now that you reminded me of this setting, I'm like, yeah, of course I'm now I remember, but but uh, isn't this part of the job that in many ways might be uh, as Tony LaRusso would say tied for first like when you're mm-hmm. a sports writer, all the shared experiences you have oh, yeah. with people that not only not only on your own team, Cincinnati Post or St. Louis Post Dispatch or Baltimore News American or Dallas Morning News or all, or all the places we work. Um just those experiences when you're you you never know like in a press box for a national event or an, you know in an arena for a national event press row you never know who you're really going to end up mm-hmm. sitting next to, and then to have that shared experience and you think about we both had been doing this a long time you think about all the people along the way that we sat next to like we did yeah. that night or we were in the press box at a football NFL game or or whatever the situation may be. That to me is, uh, that's the thing I miss most about not being a newspaper guy. It's the camaraderie mm-hmm. and those shared, shared experiences. And then many years later, you, you have a treasure trove of stories you can tell and exchange and have some laughs. And um, that brotherhood or sisterhood, you know, that's, uh, that's, a big, that's a big part of why that job is so unique and so special. You're talking about sitting next to somebody in a press box. I was not there, but, but you were at the 1989 World Series there's an earthquake, right. and, and you end up, I think, filing a column from like a drug den. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that was an incredible experience and uh, a tragedy, to say the least. And I, first of all, just as it happened, I wasn't sure what was going on. I was in the auxiliary press box at Candlestick Park, which is basically the upper deck behind home plate mm-hmm. in the stands. And when that started, I thought it was just people, uh, you know, stomping their feet and because the game was getting close to start. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, no. And then there's a Bay Area journalist who I didn't really know, but just said, it's an earthquake. And I'm like, what? You know, <laughs> and I swear I was uh, I was terrified because you're helpless. There's nothing you can do. And, you know, to this day, it's gone now. I, I will always love and treasure and savor <laughs> Candlestick Park because... It's like, hey, you held up. I know, Thanks. it's funny because it was such a my dump, life. right? And yet it held up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had to file a column, and it, it was really a challenge because for a while we were sitting, sitting in that auxiliary box, but they chased us out. I, I went out to my car and, you know, had, um, had one of those uh, primitive, uh, the, the things you used to buy at uh, Radio Shack, you know, those things. Yeah. Wait a minute. Uh, you know this is like the Flintstones now, early, Radio Shack. Yeah, right. And um, you know, I I, I kind of wrote uh, by uh, with, with the uh, the interior lights on, and you know, I had some notes. So I sat there and, and wrote wrote the column in my car. But then it's like, okay, well, now, now where? How do I file this? It's, you know, you can, there's no Wi-Fi back then, and there's um, 
You couldn't find a phone line. For a while, there was one at a truck, a network mm-hmm. truck out, out in, but th- that went dead. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to have to get in the car and drive around until I can find a phone. And it's a bad neighborhood near, uh, no offense, but San Francisco, but near the ballpark. And anyway, long story short, uh, there were some guys outside the, the neighborhood, like the entrance to the neighborhood. And I said, look, man, I'm just going to level with you. I'm a sports writer from St. Louis. I need to find a phone that works. I'll pay you to, to get me to a phone, which I did. Paid them well. <laughs> and then went, went, went upon, came upon this one house, and they couldn't have been nicer. And um, I was able to transmit my story. I paid them a nice fee just for the privilege because I What truly, was the fee? What was the fee, Bernie? Um I think, you know, and keep in mind, this is 1989. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think like $100. I mean, that wasn't like, you That's know, good. Yeah. putting a $5 bill on the right. table, you know? So, and then I paid the guys outside the neighborhood entry about $100, maybe even a little more. And they protected my car and this and that. So, so, toward, so towards the end, and they could tell I was exasperated or just kind of like, I, you know, they said, hey, would you like some of this? And they're passing drugs around. <laughs> and I, I said, no, but, but they were, you know, they weren't degenerate or anything. I mean, it was just maybe a lifestyle. I mean, they're just, they got a bong, they got this, they got that. And I said, um, uh, no, but I, man, I, I, I would love a cold beer. <laughs> and they, they went in the refrigerator. He got me like a tall boy, like a Budweiser. Of course, they knew you were from St. Louis. And, <laughs> Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I sat there and chatted with them and just had a delightful time, you know. And they're passing around various, substances. Uh, various substances, you know. And um, so I don't want to, you know, I feel I, I don't want to give them the wrong idea. I mean, they were like really lovely people. That just that they were doing a lot of drugs at the time while I was trying to get this story transmitted on deadline, <laughs> you know. Uh, that's one of the great stories uh, I've had, like in my career. It was, and, and there were. There were so many other stories from fellow scribes during mm-hmm. those days. And then I stayed I stayed there for four or five days and just filed earthquake-related stories, no sports. And that, that was, uh, I hate to say satisfying because, again, we're talking about a tragedy. It's not right. like going right. to an amusement park. But it was really, uh, I felt like somehow, someway I was contributing a little bit because this was such a huge national story. And I was able to kind of contribute in well, my own you did. way. I mean, you, know, you put it, the people in, you know, in St. Louis, you put them there on the ground with you, which is what the job yeah. was all about, right? Well, you served the, the served the people of St. Louis very well by by covering that event. And you've done so many different things as a columnist at, uh, in that fine city over the years. Um, but really, when you think about it, you know, the, despite writing about a little bit of everything, what you've really written a lot about, obviously, is the Cardinals. And the Cardinals have right. such a special, you know, special uh, community following there. The, the passion for the, the Cardinals is so great. They're one of Major League Baseball's uh, marquee teams. Um, you've, served, you've covered a lot of great managers, seen great moments, great players. Let's start with a couple managers I wanted to ask you about. Uh, a couple of them, sure. Whitey Herzog and Tony LaRusso. Let, let's start with Whitey. Um, what was he like to cover on a daily basis? I feel like sometimes in time we forget about a guy like Whitey, and he was really setting the tone in the 1980s. Yeah, he was phenomenal. Um, he, he he liked having a, a good working relationship with writers. He understood that, especially in a town like St. Louis, was so baseball mad that and uh, talk radio existed. It was not wasn't quite. Cam Ox, of course, was a 
powerhouse. Yeah. But other than KMOX, there really wasn't much uh, talk sports talk radio. So the newspaper really was the thing in terms of if you want to get your message out as a manager. So and Whitey understood that. And Casey Tengel, Casey Stengel taught him all that when he was <laughs> actually a player and a coach. Just like, hey, you know, take good care of the press. Not not from a standpoint of manipulating them, but just. That, you know, that's who you got to communicate through. So, so mm-hmm. make that important. And anyway, you could go into Whitey's uh, office uh, at any time before the game, and he would be doing his diagrams and spray charts and all this stuff. He was way ahead of his time. And and just he would – you could ask him anything, and he would really give you great answers, great insight as to what he did and why. But also he would just tell stories. Everything that he talked about in terms of answering the question would lead mm-hmm. to a story, then another story, then another story. He's one of the great storytellers ever. Incredible personality. Uh, LaRusso, I thought, I still do, got a fair shake. Uh, uh, he could be combative. He and I got into it probably two or three really? times a year. Pretty, and it could, could it be, you know, could it be pretty behind, rough. I mean, was yeah, it? Yeah, you know, he he when he would get mad, he would get mad, and it was a you, kind of a showdown. Not nothing physical, but it was not always comfortable. But the thing about Larusa, he got a he got a bad rap because he would look really grumpy after games, and this is when they started televising news conferences and everything after the game. But he was actually a hell of a guy to work with because if he thought you were sincere about what you mm-hmm. wanted to know. Uh, rather than, you know, kind of jitting something up for like a hot take. He would sit there all night after a game and talk talk to you. He would explain every decision he made. He would go mm-hmm. in depth. Uh, he was never thin-skinned. I, he was very thoughtful. He was very cooperative. He loved discussions. So people would get, you know, too many times would just see that grumpy, grouchy, surly side of him because he just lost a game or whatever, and he was in a foul mood. But I understood that. Um, but other than that, I mean, it was a really, really valuable experience. In fact, just to detour briefly, I've been blessed in my career in Baltimore as a young punk sports writer. I got a chance to cover Earl Weaver wow. a little bit and, and I was terrified <laughs> of him because he just snapped at people, you know, and I'm, I'm going to stand in the back hoping he doesn't notice me. I was, I was mostly helping the beat writer, but I, but I was, you know, chasing quotes anyway. So I, I come to St. Louis and, uh, as a football writer, but. I was asked to help out with the baseball team uh, with Rick Hummel until football training mm-hmm. camp started, basically. And so I'm covering Whitey. And, you know, later on when Red Shandies was uh, an interim manager, you know, I covered him. I covered Joe Torrey in St. Louis. I covered LaRussa. I mean, that's pretty damn special. I always tell people, I said, I had a great baseball education. Some of the greatest managers who ever lived. I mean, several of them, right? Hall of Fame managers. And I'm like... Uh, you can't find, you can't learn this stuff in a book, but to be able to sit with these guys day after day, night after night, hear their stories, hear why they made decisions, unbelievable experience. And it, it really furthered my uh, knowledge of baseball. Yeah, There's just no talking baseball, uh, like in the dugout or in their office. How, how did it shape you as a columnist and what and inform what you were trying to do as a columnist in St. Louis, being able to have that type of access. Yeah, that's the point. You know, I I would try to really make valuable use of, of what these conversations led to and what they were about to explain strategy decisions or to bring up some stuff that perhaps fans, readers hadn't yeah. thought about. Uh, there was like more to a story, more to a game, in-game decision or more to a 
surface level controversy. I'd like to, I'd like, I really like to go deeper, much deeper into that. And I was fortunate to have guys who trusted me and we would talk about it. Well, take us back to, I'm really intrigued by this idea of, you know, LaRusa jumping your ass. And today in the Twitter world, right. it, it would be the story. But like you said, it would happen two or three times a year. So take us back to a moment where it happened. Do you recall a certain incident or a column? What happened? And then how did you proceed from there? Well, the most famous one actually was caught on live television uh, when Fox Sports Midwest, now Bally Sports Midwest, would televise the postgame uh, news conference, a question and answer with the LaRusa. He was at the podium mm -hmm. and all that. He was in a foul mood because... Uh, is Derek Gould did absolutely nothing wrong, but he wrote a really clever piece about the Cubs and the Cardinals rivalry. And he sort of made fun of the Cubs, not exactly something that's never been done before. And I'm, I say that to defend him. I mean, it's pretty standard yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, I think I had an F4 and on then, my computer. I hit it and there was a template, a template <laughs> for us to have, you know, Cubs jokes. So Joe Strauss also, the late, great Joe Strauss, my dear friend, he, uh, for some reason, LaRusso was mad at him. So then he decided he was mad at the entire Post-Dispatch based on that one story <laughs> that, by the way, Lou Pinella, the Cubs manager, thought was funny. They weren't <laughs> offended. But LaRusso thought, it's just disrespectful. You guys have no respect for anybody. And he just kind of just went on one of those things. So during the news conference, you know, he told those guys, he walked away from them uh, during branding practice. He told those guys, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you the whole weekend. So stay away from me. So they both tried to ask questions after the game on live TV. And he was really, really just dismissive and really rude. And, you know, I'm not trying to sound like a hero. I'm really not. But I thought, you know, someone's got to intervene here. He can't, metaphorically speaking, he can't slap my guys around like that. So I I basically just said, why, why are you acting like this? Like, what are you, this is just really rude. Why, what, are you, what are you doing here? You know, and stood up for my guys. And so this is on live TV. And today, uh, you can find this on YouTube if you if you search for it. It's still there. And it was really, really funny. And then all of a sudden, LaRusa is walking towards me. And I'm like, whoa. So I thought, hey, this is going to look bad mm -hmm. if I just sit here and let him kind of like tower over me, yeah. you know, like basically dominating. So I stood up and I'm a big guy. And when I stood up, he took a step back. <laughs> I found out later that the players in the clubhouse were watching this and thought it was great. They were laughing. They just thought it was incredible. So, but we, we patched it up. I mean, we always did. How? Um, How did you patch it soon up? Soon it was, well, this was, you know, there, this leads to another story. The night, bef the night that that happened, mm -hmm. okay, the very next day after a Saturday day game, that night was the night, one, 24 hours later, basically, that Josh Hancock got mm -hmm. killed uh, in St. Louis, a Cardinals pitcher uh, drinking and driving and, you know, like sped into the back of a truck. So that that kind of took away any of this minor trivial right. beef that LaRusse and I had. I mean, that, that one disappeared on its own for tragic yeah. reasons. But then again, he was kind of ready for war in Milwaukee when they resumed play because uh, he thought people in our business were trying to exploit the death of Josh Hancock, which was ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Uh, anyway, but but in normal times, let's say, we would go in, you know, I'd go in the next day. The one thing about LaRusso, he was really, really good about wiping it clean. In other words, okay, we had a beef. You said your your piece. I said mine. And he would move on. You know, it didn't linger. Maybe it would linger a day or so, but that would be it. Now, real quick, uh, 
one of the one of the things that always bothered him is that there, when there were days like when they were on the road, I would write something he didn't like, or maybe it, it coincided at home. I just had you know, I always believed in showing up, but every day you're not going to be right. perfect, like perfect timing on that stuff. And so there would be the odd time where I didn't, where I wrote a column that was a little acerbic, and then I wasn't there right away, and. He just said, you know, that's one of the reasons that's what we, you know, you and I don't get along all the time because I get so frustrated. At you. I get mad. I have no outlet because you're not there. You're there most of the time, but when you're not there. And, and I said, well, look, I said, you call me 24 hours a day. If you see something, you call me and we'll talk about it. If I'm at the ballpark, we'll talk about it. You have unlimited access to me and let's you do it. You have the bat phone at Bernie's house. So he would do, <laughs> he did it. He would, he would, and, and even if it's in the middle of the night or something, I mean, I, I didn't even hear the phone on my, my mobile phone and he would leave a long vo- voicemail explaining why he thought I was wrong and why he was ticked off. And it almost became therapy. He, he got out of the system and then we could move on, you know? And, uh, uh, you remember that crazy game uh, in the World Series in Texas where they had the Cardinals had the, the, the 2011 oh, World yeah. Series? Larusa went to the mound and like Lance Lynn's there. And he says, what are you doing here? He said, well, they told me I'm in the game. And he said, I didn't, I didn't say you should be in the game. Uh, there was this yeah. big, something was wrong right. with the phones or something. And, the, and it, it was a major screw up. And so I wrote about it. I swear, I'm pulling in front of my house. This is like 7 a.m. the following morning. I took the first flight out of Dallas. We all did. All the writers wanted. And as, as I'm pulling in front of my house, like LaRusa's calling me. And I'm like, what, what in the hell? And it's like seven in the morning, and he, he's like, "Look, you know, I, I know, I know, I was a mess, but uh, you know, you you just made too big of a deal about it. This wasn't a big deal." I said, "Tony, it was a huge deal. This just wasn't a big deal. You know, you you you're trying to stir it up. You're making way too. You blew it out of proportion. It just wasn't that big of a deal." And, and I'm like, "Look, I said, I'm I'm telling you this. You and I worked together a long time. I said, I don't know that I would call us friends, but we've had a good right. relationship. I said, I'm going to tell you right now. When you walk into that off day." Uh, news conference uh, later today, every single question is going to be about that. So you better be prepared because if you think that I'm like the only guy or woman in America that made a big deal out of it, I, I said, you better get yourself prepared. And sure enough, it was like every single question. And he was prepared. I don't know. Was that uneth- unethical to tip him off? I just thought it was the thing to do in part to defend myself because he really thought I was like some lone wolf blowing a story out of proportion. That was hardly the case. So we had a good relationship that way. You know, it was really an interesting relationship. And as time goes by, man, I appreciate him more and more. I I thought, you know, the Chicago White Sox thing was unfortunate. He shouldn't have done it, but I would have liked to have seen him done well because I don't cover him anymore. Well, you mentioned game five of the 2011 World Series. I wanted to ask you about game six. Yeah, great. When David Freeze hits that home run crazy game, Looks like Texas Rangers has had the championship locked up. Right. What was it like as a writer that night on deadline? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you PM newspaper guys wouldn't understand this. <laughs> no, it was actually one of those crazy, crazy nights where the game had so many twists and turns. And Burwell and I, um, you know, must have written three or four columns on deadline. It would change. It would change. The layout, miss them. And we, uh, we every time we we thought that uh, we had, you know, we knew what the outcome was going to be. You know, basically Cardinals lose. Something would happen. Most famously, the the freeze triple that, um, you know, tied it, and then 
the, the freeze home run. But anyway, long, the, let me cut to the chase. It's one of those newspaper stories that anybody in the business can relate to. Uh, my friend and editor, Roger Hensley, was on site. And so he's dealing with the people back at the paper, like in terms of deadlines, because we, just like every paper had unrealistic deadlines. And, you know, he was relaying messages from like a vice president of the, of the company. It's like, those guys have to get their columns and stories in right now, right now, or we're not going to be able to get these papers delivered on time. And Roger, to his credit, has stood up to him. He's like, we can't, we can't throw newspapers on people's lawns when after this incredible night, they're going to be looking to like stuff, stuff to sink their teeth into to read. And we can't like throw some, well, you know, uh, the game, the game wasn't over at the time of press, the time of uh, filing, you know, and, and so uh, we'll have a more completed story like tomorrow morning. It's like, you can't do that. Right. You can't do that. And they got into, a, they got into a good argument and like we, we flat out refused to center columns and game stories in. We just said, no, this is ludicrous. Newspaper business got a lot of problems as it is. You know, you're in St. Louis, you're going to, you're going to throw like an incomplete column and game story that doesn't have the final score. No, right. you don't, you can't do it. So that, that, that became this big battle Royal in the press box. And it was just looking back on it now is really, really funny, but I'll always appreciate Roger Hensley for sticking up for his guys. Burwell and I had another great story. Uh, this was in 2005. We wrote, we each wrote a column, our own version of it. Cardinals lose, season over. That's the Brad Lidge, Albert Pujols game. Oh, yeah. So the columns were done, and we actually send them in. And, you know, Pujols hits that bomb, and it's like, oh, my good. And Burwell and I just started laughing. And Burwell had the, 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 the most wonderful, booming Loud laugh, Yeah, right? Brian, uh, that was right? a great laugh, right? It was. it was. Yeah. So we just looked at each other because it, I can cuss here, right? A little oh, bit. Yeah, it yeah. was like It was like one of those, oh, shit, what now, you know? And uh, But we were laughing at it, and like writers from around the country, country were looking at us like, what's wrong with these guys? You know, why are they laughing? Because it was just absurd. And Burwell settled it. Roger Hensley was there, and everybody's stressed out, which I understand, and Burwell said, look, just give us 20 minutes. We'll each get a new column into you. And that's what we did. But that was one of those great nights where you love being a sports writer. Right. The camaraderie with Brian Burwell, a crazy ass experience, you know, like chaos in the press box. The you adrenaline. Know. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You can't get to sleep. As you know, stuff like that, you cannot get to sleep. You just don't go back to the hotel and, you know, five minutes later, you're snoring. It, it doesn't work that way. You stay up all night. Because you're like on this natural high, this adrenaline rush. Yeah, you'd be walking but, out of a park three in the morning, just like disheveled, brain yeah. fried, and you're like, great game, <laughs> wish I could have seen it. That's right. <laughs> I, f I really felt that way about um, game six with a freeze. And that's when, um, you know, obviously the, the, the digital operation was getting more prominent. So I think I stayed in the press box uh, till maybe 3 a.m. that night because I basically, you know, rewrote. I wanted to give everyone a great column there was as best as I could online that they could go to because the the print edition column was fine, but it, it wasn't what you wanted because it right. was rushed. Right. So um, and I, I I was like, you know, I love having this. I love having this digital option. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Right. So there were a lot of us there that night uh, till three or four in the morning writing. Oh, yeah. You mentioned pool hosts and we talked about great managers with the Cardinals and great moments like the freeze home run. Um, Pujols, obviously, Albert is one of the all-time great players ever. 
you know, you think St. Louis, you think Stan Musial, Rogers Hornsby's an historic figure. But you saw Albert as a rookie and then for 11 years with the Cardinals and then he comes back in this dramatic fashion this right. past season. Uh, what was your relationship like with Pujols? What did you think of him as a player who got the document? You got the document, you know, history. Yeah, I, uh, I would say that was my number one most uh, satisfying experience in my career, just being able to uh, write about him every day for those first 11 se- seasons in St. Louis. And then when he came back, and had this incredibly imp- improbable, uh, he went out in style and he yeah. went out in grand style and he didn't hit for the first half of the season, basically. And then all of a sudden he made some swing adjustments and it's just like what he was doing was incredible. But no, he, you know, there's, Pools is the only guy in the history of the major leagues that has 700 home runs, uh, 3,000 plus hits and multiple MVP awards. He's the only guy. Because mm. Hank Aaron, incredibly, only won one MVP award. So this is a this is a very this is a very singular great player in terms of all the stats and numbers he put up. And the pool holes this past summer was incredible because he was so at ease. He was so happy. He was so laid back. Uh, he enjoyed every minute. The, the pool holes, the younger pool holes in St. Louis was so wired, so intense. Yeah, that's how I remember him, right? He'd yeah. come through Cincinnati, and you know, occasionally I'd be over in the visitor's clubhouse, and, and Albert wasn't a guy that seemed to be very engaging with the media. No. He could be when he was in the mood, but he wasn't in the mood. He His pregame routine was so rigid about you know following it religiously. It's one of the reasons it made him great. I never took it personally. I just... Like everybody else, I just thought, man, this would have been nicer if he just would kind of drop his guard every now and then. But when he came back for the final year, he was a totally different guy because he understood. He had the benefit of all those years playing baseball, knowing that this was the end. He was in a place where he loves and he is loved and he's with a team that he loves and is loved. And he just he just went with it in the most pleasant way. Right. Totally different guy. And that, that, would, that kind of made the story really cool. But that what he did last summer... That charge to 700 and him playing at such a high level, turning back the clock, that's right up there with with uh, on the short list of the most uh, entertaining and satisfying things I've ever covered, along with like the, 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 the Rams team that won this, came out of nowhere to win the Super Bowl, the 1999 Rams. Uh, the Blues won in the Stanley Cup first time after like 51 years of existence, something like that. Um, but that that one is real there, really there, way up there because... It had immense sentimental value. It was, a, it was like an emotional thing. Yeah, I saw that you tweeted uh, something about it moved you in ways you didn't anticipate. That, that's exactly right, and it's true. I got to the point where I couldn't wait to watch the game that night. I mean, I was watching it as a fan, but also someone who covered him and knew him and grew up with him, so to speak. And to see him do this extraordinary thing at the end, I, I mean, it's like, you know, get me to the first pitch. I, I, I need more. I, I was just riveted to it. I, and I speak for all St. Louis baseball fans. Everybody was riveted to it. I think nationally people were riveted to it. It was, it was just a wonderful experience. Right. Some things are just meant to enjoy, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes even uh, when you're in the business, you almost forget that. Because it's your yeah. job and you're trying to, right. you know, you know trying to do journalism and you can't get too close. It's almost like you can't be happy. <laughs> no, that's right. Because if you, you know, if you write something all flowery and gushy, you're, you know, you're a homer and, yeah. you know, you just, you can't win. But it's like, no, man, something like that, 
you just you just drop all pretense and you just drop all whatever what kind of posturing we may or may not do in our business, you know, you just go with it. And because it, first of all, it makes the people you talk to on the radio very happy to hear somebody talking about it every day, telling old pool stories, but also writing for Dan McLaughlin's site. Um, and I wrote pool holes a lot. People just loved the next, next day to have something to read that would really get into, the, tap into their own emotions. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So pool holes comes back to St. Louis this summer and, Delivers this just dramatic, you know, race to 700, hits his 700th homer. I think he finished with 703, right? I think Uh, so. And so you had this great home run summer. You were obviously there in 1998 for a different type of home run summer. Right, right. The chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa for Roger Maris's then record, 61 homers. I want to ask you a couple different things about that. First, take us back to 1998. On a daily basis, what was that summer like for you as a journalist uh, covering um, McGuire and, and Sosa? I, I, I loosely remember, I don't know the, like the firm date, but it seems to me it was like right before the All-Star break where as a columnist who, you know, and we don't travel with the team all the time. I know the guys in like in New York do, like the columnists, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but they put me on the road with uh, with the beat writers, you know, and I basically had to, not had to, it wasn't drudgery, but basically my assignment was to write about McGuire and the home run race every single day. So, I mean, I had to find just, it, 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 I've never been through a situation like this where I write about one person, one athlete for literally months straight without really taking a break, without really writing about anything else because people couldn't get enough. So that part of it was really unique. It was a very exciting thing. And you could tell that it was great for baseball. Um, And what blew me away is when you would go to places that weren't drawing at all, you know, maybe like uh, the Marlins, maybe at Pittsburgh. Uh, I can name some others, but you get the point. Right. And there would be people lined up hours before, uh, the gates open because they just wanted to watch him take batting practice. You show up in Pittsburgh. I remember looking around like, this is unbelievable. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And you would go to these places like, again, like Pittsburgh, it's, it, it, three river stadiums packed. And you go to my, you go to Miami or wherever that ballpark was, um, where it is uh, packed, you know, every seat sold out all this excitement. And you're like, you know, this, this is something that not to sound corny, that has really captured the imagination, the fancy of baseball fans. And you could see the energy, mm-hmm. the positive energy that was bringing them back to the ballpark. And of course, we all know that getting caught up in the circus aspect of it, how exciting it was, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure we all had suspicions of some nature. Is this really on the up and up? But I'm going to raise my hand and say I was as guilty as anyone of kind of glossing over those questions because the chase was just the thing that people wanted to read about. And the chase was the thing that excited my audience. And would I have handled it differently? Probably so. Although you have to remember at that time, uh, you know, McGuire had Andro, which was a supplement that some people, you know, would say, or many people say, well, that's kind of a precursor thing to a gateway to, hardcore steroids because it, it sort of does the same thing. It You can enhance your workouts and keep your strength up. Right. 
The, the thing of it is, though, it was available at every, every uh, you know, GNC or, you know, drugstore, pharmacy, over-the-counter. Mm-hmm. It was, there was nothing illegal about taking it. And I couldn't prove that he was using steroids. So the point is, like, where do I go with that story, you know? Mm-hmm. There was nothing on the books that said, no, you can't take Andrew. Later on, Major League Baseball outlawed it. But I think a lot of guys were taking a lot of different things, uh, you know, including steroids. But how do you prove it at the time? I don't think you really do. You can cast suspicion. That's about the best you can do. Right. Do you look back on it now thinking you wish you had handled it differently? I'm, uh, I went through this phase. Brian Burwell did too, when, and although he, he wasn't at the post-dispatch in 98, but... Uh, we both went through this phase, though, of just kind of beating up on McGuire after the fact. I mean, once once he came out and said he used steroids, things like that, um, probably went overboard that way. And I think maybe I, I'm going to speak for myself. I was probably overcompensating for my earlier uh, failure not to be more diligent about trying to find out about this. Hmm. Uh, yeah, we all knew something was up. But again, proving it is the thing that was impossible at that time, unless somebody really wanted to spill the beans and nobody wanted to talk about it. That part of it, you get shut down immediately. But then, then I got to tell you, I, I flipped in this regard. Um, the people that run baseball and the, the people that enforce rules and this and that, I mean, nobody did a thing. No one lifted a finger. No one raised any objections. Everyone, along, everyone went along for the ride. Right. McGuire and Sosa were great for business. They were great for business. The owners loved them. Uh, the commissioner loved them. Um, oh, yeah, it was four years after the strike, which yeah. only, which basically shut down the World Series and nearly killed the game. And it's like, I'm no different than, you know, the people, the established, baseball establishment. I think we all sensed that something was up. But there wasn't going to be a peep from the business side, the owners and, you know, whomever, the commissioner, because they knew they had a bonanza on their hands and they were selling tickets in places where they weren't selling tickets before that. So everybody just enjoyed the show. Everybody enjoyed the circus. And it's like, you know what? It's kind of hypocritical in a way because everyone knew deep down inside there was something something fishy going on. Mm-hmm. And, every, and everyone, the, the entire industry, including the media, basically, just we just kind of turned, turned the other way. And so now retroactively, we want to get the, the, you know, this big, this big, strong, take this strong ethical stand. Well, we didn't take it at the time. So what's the point of beating up on him later? Especially when he was one of the guys who came clean and told all about taking steroids. And granted, that was part of his condition of him getting back into baseball as a coach. And he was a hell of a coach, by the way. I always thought Mark was a really good dude. I really mean that. I still do. It was a complicated story, but I, I just don't like, um, to this day, you can tell the way I'm talking. I don't like everybody oversimplifying it. You know, good, bad, good, bad. It's a lot of gray area there because the institution of baseball embraced what was happening. I used to say pro, I used to say pro wrestling was more honest than baseball because pro wrestling told you it was fake. <laughs> That's right. And there you know technically there weren't any rules on the book, uh, collectively bargained rules prohibiting the use of performance enhancing drugs. That's the other thing. Technically, they did they were doing nothing wrong. Retroactively, you can apply the new rules, but is that fair? I don't think it is. Yeah. And I know that that's a, it's a stand that maybe more people than not would disagree with, but I'm okay with that. It's I don't inter- like hypo- I don't like hypocrisy. It's interesting that your thoughts about it all has evo- have evolved over the years, which is yeah. part of life, right? It is. It is. Yeah. Um, and people say, well, it may not have been collectively bargain rule, but you know, taking steroids is against the law. I said, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know where the steroids were coming from. You know, 
I don't, I don't know who his supplier was. Uh, how do I know that somebody related to the Cardinals wasn't the connection? I don't know. I mean, so again, everybody wants to demonize these guys, but nobody wanted to demonize them in 98, even though they probably had an idea that something was going on that was a little, uh, little tawdry. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's talk some football because you actually first went to St. Louis as an NFL writer to cover the football Cardinals. The football Cardinals. But anyway, the greatest show on turf was St. Louis uh, NFL experience was not a happy one. You know, between the Cardinals and the Rams, it was 49 years only 16 winning seasons, made the playoffs, I think, like eight times, you know, eight times in 49 years. It was a lot of bad football. But those years were magical, and part of it's just the way it all happened. I mean, you have one of the nicest people on the planet, Dick Vermeil, the head coach, coming out of retirement after 14 years. Yeah, Dick Vermeil was like radiating sunshine, you know. I mean, I think <laughs> about you mentioned LaRusa. From afar, LaRusa always seemed like his shoes were too tight. Yeah, Dick yeah, right, Vermeil right. just seemed like he was just sunshine. Happiness, he was optimism. And then, <laughs> then you have the 99 Rams where, you know, in, in spring, they signed Trent Green, who was a really good signing. And he was uh, just what they needed, a leader to be there working out all, you know, all off season. You know, the, the, the veteran players were like, hey, we got a leader. We got a guy who's in there with us. He sort of took charge and then and he looked great. And then, of course, they get Marshall Falk. Uh, and the next thing you know, you know, uh, third preseason game, Trent Green gets uh Cheap shot by Rodney Harrison and tears up his ACLs, gone for the year. They didn't have a quarterback, or so we thought. And Kurt Warner was around, only played through 11 passes the final game the season before, and that was it. That was the extent of his NFL experience. And so, you know, Dick Vermeil and Mike March made the decision. We think this guy has a chance to be pretty good. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go with him. We're going to see what happens. What did they see uh, in him? Um, smart. Made great decisions, even on the practice field. Knew where the ball goes, knew everything, like great instincts. Also, a tough, tough guy who would stand and take hits. And he would stand and take hits and get rid of the ball. But he would throw it, even under extreme duress, he would throw it with great accuracy. Now, it's one thing to do that in practice. It's another thing, well, what about the real games? But I remember Jim Thomas and I, a great, great friend of mine, and uh, post-dispatch is going to be retiring at the end of the blue season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember you, he and I were the only two media people got a chance to talk to Kurt the day after that, um, uh, that injury. And that's because we stayed at the complex really late. And he gave us about 10 minutes. And I remember thinking, we all, both Jim and I remember thinking, you know, boy, he's awfully poised. He seems like he, it's almost like he believes that this was meant to be or something. I mean, there's something interesting about this guy. Hmm. He played great from the first regular season game uh, all the way through the Super Bowl. Now, did I think he was going to surprise people winning the MVP award, leading them to Super Bowl victory, winning the Super Bowl MVP? No, but I thought, I thought there was a chance he'd play pretty well. And he did, well, to say the least he did. There's something about that guy. There still is. And that's one of the that's one of my favorite stories that I covered too. The you know this this guy coming out of nowhere, 
and becoming a Hall of Fame quarterback and being able to do what he did in the first year as a starter. Right, right from the start. Right. A guy who was an arena league quarterback, a guy that had to go to NFL Europe and play, you know, and uh, the whole high V stuff is true. You know, in the middle of the night when he's stocking shelves, he'd, he'd be throwing uh, rolls of paper towels to like another coworker, like down the aisle, working on his passing. You you go from that to to being like the top quarterback in the NFL for for a while. That the '99 season certainly so, and he was just a great guy. It was such a great story. This it's one of the great stories really in NFL history. I would maintain, given that he was a nobody. Do you have and, a favorite story about Kurt Warner? Um. I think it, it, it's a couple things. Number one, um, the, the third game of the year was in your town, Cincinnati at the time, and they blew out the Bengals. And all the questioning at post-game in Warner was, was basically along the lines like, are you surprised you're doing this? Uh, are, do you feel you're an underdog? Do you, you know, are you, do you, th- you think you're going to come back to earth? And blah? he really, Kurt's one of the nicest people ever. He really got irritated. Mm. And he basically said in so many words, I'm good. I know I'm good. And, uh, you know, I'm going to have to prove it to all you guys. I know why you ask your questions. I'm not offended, but don't underestimate me. I'm, I'm, I know what I'm doing. And I, I remember thinking, you know, for such a, a really good soul, that pride he had, that really jumped out at me. And then the other thing was the guy's physical toughness. In the Mike Martz offense, he took a lot of hits because there was a lot of everybody's out running patterns. Mm-hmm not keeping tight ends in the block. Orlando Pace would hold down the one side. Uh, Marshall Fox out, you know, he's out as a receiver. And he had to have tremendous courage in an athletic sense to make a lot of the plays that he made, and he didn't care. And there'd be times you would go in, and after the game, you could tell he was really beat up. He was really in pain. Uh, Even when they won the Super Bowl, uh, that guy got pummeled by the Titans. Jeff Fisher was just blitzing him every single play. He's taking, just taking a beating. Dick Vermeil didn't even think he could go in the second half. He was in that much pain, but he said, no, I'm going. And so after the game, it's like his skin was totally, uh, there was no color in his face. Mm. I mean, he was just gritting his teeth in pain. Mm. And I just remember thinking, this is probably not good for him per se, but uh, I don't think I've ever seen a tougher guy. I mean, mm. tie, again, tied for first. Um, just that his pride, his stubbornness, his, his uh, courage under fire, all that stuff. Just a great, great quarterback and a great, great competitor and as smart as could be. Yeah. Won the MVP, led the Rams to that Super Bowl championship in 99. Mike Jones makes the tackle. Right. That's got to rank up there for you among things that you witnessed. One play. Yeah. And I I remember the, the, the instant reaction was confusion. Jim Thomas and I, when, you know, Kevin Dyson made the catch and he was rolling. And there was that there was that moment or two of disorientation where you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Did he just score? Did he just score? And, you know, you look at the replay now. It's like, well, of course he didn't score. But in that moment, it was just like, what just happened there? And then you saw the official, you know, basically say game over. So, yeah, that was pretty cool, too. That's a really big moment in St. Louis sports. Right. Well, then they lose the Super Bowl a couple of years later with Martz as the head coach. He went from offensive coordinator to head coach. And then they ultimately leave town. So in right. many respects, you know, the NFL has done nothing but break the heart of the city of St. Louis. And you've been there there's, to witness it. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. Like when my, when uh, Bill Bidwell moved the Cardinals, it was a little different. He tried for years to get a stadium built. And he got caught up into through no fault of his own, this 
typical, which still goes on, this battle between St. Louis City and St. Louis County. Instead of uniting and having one metropolitan uh, community writ large, uh, you know, they're always fighting over, no, 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 we want that for the city. No, we want that for the county. Bidwell waited like four years. It was obvious they, were, they had no intention to do something about it. And I don't blame him for actually looking for a place to go because um, there was never going to be a, a satisfying outcome. He didn't really want to move the team. He cried when they voted to let him go to Phoenix. He mm. cried because mm. his family was here. It was just where Michael Bidwell grew up. I mean, listen, St. Louis in effect, took the Rams from L.A. So we have to be a little careful here about painting ourselves as like this complete victor, poor little, hey, we played the game as a community. We saw an opening. We grabbed the team. Yeah, good point. But it's just that the way it was done, the way it was done was just so wrong as ultimately was proven by the fact that the NFL settled a lawsuit, you know, I, I forget the figure, you know, close to $900 million because they broke their own rules for transfers. So the way it was done was awful. And in that standpoint, you know, St. Louis was a victim. But as far as like grabbing a team and then the team, L.A., through the help of a Missouri guy who has no soul, uh, decides, well, I can make more money to go take that team back. Um you hate to say it, but it's dog eat dog in that league. Money, money rules the world. But um, if they had just followed their own guidelines, then I wouldn't have liked it. I would have hated it. But I still sort of say, well, that's just the way the, that's the way the rules work. They followed the rules and they deemed it okay. You know, we're going to allow this. But they didn't do that. They kind of they kind of cooked the books to make it look like there was a case. There was no case. Right. That was tough. St. Louis and, and, and this and this and the city hates not everybody. But I'm frustrated uh, the job that I do because I feel like I can't even write about the NFL because people just get outraged. Mm. It's almost gotten to the point where it's 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 way too much. Well, the city of St. Louis still has its heartache over uh, the NFL, but you know they suffered some heartache with the Blues also and the, the hockey yeah. team until they you know finally won the cup in 2019. Big deal. I wanted to wrap this up with a little bit of hockey. Uh, first of all, wasn't your first byline a story about Gordy Howe? Yeah, you know everything, Todd. Um, I was a punk at, at the Baltimore News American, like 19 years old. I was an intern, but I turned it into something else. And it was the greatest education I've ever had because uh, I was bored, to, really bored by school. But the, the News American had all these older reporters and I would go out and follow them. It was a PM paper. I would go out uh, to, to these veteran, you know, cops reporters, like on crime scenes and everything else, like s- stuff straight out of the wire, you know, and, you know, these triple homicides or whatever. And they and they would let me tag along just to observe. You talk about getting an education. Right. So anyway, I decided it's like, you know, I'm doing all this work for them and uh, everybody seems to appreciate I'm one of these hustle guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't cover any hockey at all. Um, and it's like, you know, Gordy Howe's going to be playing at the, you know, the Capitol Center. He's coming in Capitol. with Hartford, right? Hartford, with Harvard. Harvard, yeah. yeah. And I said, you know, this is, it'll be his last, last time there because uh, he had already announced he was going to retire at the end of the season. So I said, let, let me go cover that. No, nah, kid, it's, it's like an old-fashioned newspaper story. It's not, nah, kid, you're too young. You're not ready. You're like, what, I said, How, 19, 20? 19, 19, 19 years yeah. old. So I said, well, look, here, here's what I'll do. I said, um, I'll go. I'll cover it. I'll interview him and I'll write the story. If the story is not up to standards, I will not be offended. You just don't run it. But if it's okay and you run it, that's great. We have a good story about a really famous athlete. 
So the, the, the sports center at the time did one of these kind of like, all right, you know, and I did it. And even though I had a terrible cliche uh, early in the story, which they should have edited out, you know, like, like a fine wine, Gordy Howe, <laughs> blah, 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 really awful. But I was 19, right? <laughs> but they ran it. And I'll never, I'll never uh, forget that feeling of just being so excited. And I'll never forget the feeling of my maternal grandfather, who I, I went down the day that story appeared because I knew that he was following everything I did and he was rooting for me and it meant a lot to him. And I, I remember him, and he said, I want to read this again while you're here because I've been reading it all day long. And he's, he starts crying. And so that's the kind of stuff that just makes an impact. That Look at me, I'm 63, almost 64 years old. And I remember that day like it was uh, two weeks ago, you know. So... Um, but That's a great moment. You put your cards on it, the table. Yeah. You wrote your story, and they said, you know what? This kid did a good job. We're going to put it in there. And now you have your grandfather. Well, you start with Gordy Howe, and I wanted to ask you about another hockey player as we wrap this up, and that's Brett Hall. Yeah. Who spent the majority of his career in St. Louis, uh, I think 11 seasons. Um, the guy was just a scoring machine, uh, but also very charismatic. Um Give us a little bit of Brett Hall from your memory bank. You know, he when I say he seemed out of place, I don't mean that literally. He loved St. Louis. He loved playing for the Blues. That's where he became a star. But he was so charismatic. He had such a um, presence about him. He knew how to stir the pot. He knew, <laughs> you know, there was always headline-making things. You know, his battles with coaches and this and that. It, and it was like basically... Never, I don't think there had ever been, even though the Blues had a legacy of really outstanding players, there had never been anyone quite like him in a Blues uniform. Because this was like a guy you would expect to be in New York stirring it up, causing controversy, but then also score 90 goals, you know. Or maybe you would expect, not in those days, L.A., but he's in, in the Midwest, he's in St. Louis, and the Blues have always been a really, uh, really beloved franchise here, but also a franchise that in terms of players um, – you know, it's been kind of a quiet franchise that way. You know, there are not a lot of guys stirring it up all the time, right. you know. Midwest. And he did. Yeah. He did. Right. And so it's almost like it's, well, you got this this giant personality and he's in this medium-sized market where it's kind of tame and civil. And that was as much fun as watching him play because you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth, right? You never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. And... To see him uh, go at it with Mike Keenan as much as he did—that I mean—that's uh, that's a Donnie Brook, that's a battle royale. You know, they hated each other. By the way, can I tell a story? Sure, that's what we're here for. It's I had to tell this one because it's one of my more unusual uh, <laughs> uh, sports writing stories. I get an anonymous tip. In fact, I got two. This was right after Mike Keenan won the Stanley Cup in with the Rangers, and it's it's literally that offseason, not that long after they won the cup. He was in a beef with uh, Rangers management about a bonus that he claims they owed him. Mm -hmm. And his, his, his attorney, his agent said, you know, you can leave, you know, and that, and that turned out to be a big battle. But anyway, so I got a tip that the guys that owned the blues at the time were in the Cleveland airport. And it was like really random. It was like a Saturday afternoon. And everyone's like, you know, and I'm, I, I, I think I saw Mike Keenan, but I can't be sure. But what are these guys doing in the Cleveland airport? Yeah. You know? And so 
I got another tip along the same lines. I said, I'm going to have to make some calls here. So I, I get in touch with Mike Shanahan, great guy who owned the blues, good, turned out to be a good friend. Um, and I said, I asked him about this and there was like silence, on, <laughs> silence on the other side of the, of the conversation. And he said, listen, uh, I'm gonna have to get back to you. And I, and I'm like, uh, uh-uh, I got him. So, um, they called me back and said, look, we got to talk totally off the record. Yes, we're, we're, we're trying to hire Mike Keenan as the coach, but you can't write about it. It'll blow it all up. You can't write it. I said, look, I found out about it. I of course, I got to write about it. Exactly. And, right. and they said, all right, now you may disapprove of, of my decision here. They said, look, you know us. You trust us. We would never screw you over. If you can just hold on this for another day, no one will know about it. You you will come to dinner with the the two of us and Mike Keenan. We will be in a back room at an Italian restaurant. You you will be at the dinner table with him, and then you will have a half an hour to interview him. And no one no one else will know about this. People on our own organization don't know about this. But if you would write it in advance, it could absolutely blow the whole thing up. So I made a calculated decision. I knew I could trust these guys. Mm-hmm. So sure enough. It went exactly as planned. And St. Louis woke up the next morning with this huge 1A headline about Blues hire Mike Keene and his coach. And people were, that, that's like an old-fashioned scoop. Oh, yeah. Those things don't happen anymore, right? Right. Now, now that I'm, I want your opinion. But was the newspaper spinning like it does yeah. in the old movies? <laughs> Mike Keenan, who just won the Stanley Cup, has bolted from the Rangers. Signed, he signed with the Blues. He's their next coach. It was, it, even to this day, I'm like, wow, I, that really happened. Didn't that's it? great. You know, it was just I just love newspaper stories, right? Yeah, it's been a real sheer delight just to have you with us and uh, sharing all your uh, stories from over the years. So great to reconnect with you, Bernie. I always enjoyed speaking with you, and uh, I wish you the best in your future endeavors. Well, likewise, and you've always been a first-class dude and um, who believes in the craft and all the all the good things uh, about sports writing that should uh, people should remember. You know, we were, we have been very fortunate to be able to do what we do, even with some of the hardship and whatever. You know, yeah. but uh, no, I've always I wish you and I had spent more time together through the years. But uh, we will always have Chris Weber, right? <laughs> we will always have Chris Weber. Thanks, <laughs> Thank Bernie. You so much. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Bill Hoffman and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing, to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!